If you sit at the edge of a lake or the sea long enough and you let your mind wander, some questions might arise. Questions like, what secrets does this water keep? And who has this lake nurtured, quenching thirsts and watering plants? On the other hand, whose last breath has it taken? Lately, there have been several stories in the headlines of people being found in their submerged vehicles years after they went missing. But not all of the bodies that have been found have been car accidents. Lake Mead in Nevada and Arizona has uncovered six victims this year alone due to heavily receding waters. One body was found in a barrel, and it's believed to be a mob shooting. Lake Mead is not a natural lake. It's a reservoir that was built in the 1930s. It covers 247 square miles, or about 640 square kilometers. Its history is short. Even so, there are rumored to be hundreds of bodies hidden in its depths. Imagine, then, if you will, a natural lake, one that's been around for centuries and is a hundred times larger. How many secrets does a lake like that keep? Today, we will talk about one tiny secret out of thousands. It began with a pleasure trip and ends with the mysterious disappearance of two lovers. Two people, in the prime of their lives, vanished on Lake Huron. Her body was found, but his never was. Was this tragedy an accident, or was it murder? Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Lana Stampion's family knew she was something special. Physically, she was tall and blonde, the kind of girl you might see on a magazine cover. She even did some modeling after high school. She spent six years traveling the United States as a model in auto shows. Her father was a retired pipe fitter, and her mother a hairstylist. Although she may have come from humble beginnings, she always had high ambitions. Lana was smart and driven. She went on to become the first lawyer in her family, with a successful career as an attorney for the city of Detroit. Lana's personality was bubbly and outgoing. She'd been known to randomly burst into song. Her family teased her mercilessly about her off-key singing, but that didn't stop her from belting out a tune and putting smiles and rolling eyes on the faces of the people who loved her. She was just the kind of girl that Chuck Rutherford fell for, smart, beautiful, and outgoing. Many men were drawn to Lana, but in her mid-thirties, she seemed to be having too much fun to settle down. That was until she started dating Chuck. Chuck was a 34-year-old attorney who worked for a Detroit prosecutor's office. He was the son of a prominent Michigan lawyer and had his own practice. The couple dated for a year before moving in together. According to their friends, Chuck was quieter than Lana's previous boyfriends. He was tall, with light brown hair, and he knew his way around a courtroom. A former colleague described him as fearless when working. His friends and ex-girlfriends described him as a sensitive guy, a poet with a dry sense of humor, a little vain maybe, but with a habit of anonymously giving to charities. It was clear to everyone they met that Chuck was infatuated with Lana. He would fawn over her, making it clear that she was the center of his universe. Once at a wedding in Bermuda, Chuck went up to Lana's aunt and godmother and said, I really love your niece. Lana's godmother thought it was sweet, especially because she had just met Chuck. Perhaps she perceived some of his actions as clingy, because depending on who you asked, the couple were either nearly engaged or on the verge of a split. Lana had told her best friend that she was uncertain about where the relationship was heading. Even so, they continued to share Chuck's house with three dogs they had rescued together. By most accounts, 
they seemed very happy together. Lana's father had been a U.S. Coast Guard officer. He brought his kids up to love the water and boats. Lana grew up with them, and she owned one herself. She had a 27-foot-long, well-craft cabin cruiser that she named Sea's Life. For those who might not know, a cabin cruiser is a boat that has, just like the name implies, a cabin below the deck. Imagine a tiny bedroom with a small sink and kitchen area, as well as a tiny bathroom. The couple loved to spend weekends on the boat. Chuck wasn't a boater himself, but he happily indulged his girlfriend's love of the water. They spent almost every summer weekend on Lana's boat, and Chuck was becoming comfortable enough to take a turn at the helm. In August of 2005, the couple had planned to take an extended vacation together on the boat. It was a trip Lana had been excited for all summer. On Wednesday, August 10th, she launched the boat from her parents' house in Bell River, Canada, just across from Detroit. This was nothing new. She'd done it hundreds of times before. Their plan was to take the boat to Mackinac Island. This is a summer tourist hotspot in northern Michigan. It's one that's only accessible by plane or boat. What started as an exciting vacation would soon turn tragic and leave many people with unanswered questions. Chuck and Lana planned to take the boat up the St. Clair River and into the vast waters of Lake Huron. From there, they would drive northwards up the coast of Michigan, sticking close to the state's eastern shore and well protected from the typically western winds. Over the span of two days, they planned to make their way all the way up to the shores of Mackinac Island. By all accounts, Lana was a fanatic about the safety of herself and her passengers who were aboard Sea's Life. She paid close attention to the wind and weather. Because the forecast had predicted some wind and rain that weekend, Lana's family said she was in a hurry to leave that Wednesday morning, hoping to get a head start on any bad weather. Before saying goodbye, the couple promised Lana's parents they'd call every night so they wouldn't have to worry. When Lana checked in that first evening, she told her parents that they'd made it further than she expected. They'd driven all the way into a marina in Oscoda and were safely tied up. Feeling ravenous, they were going to go look for some decent food. Once they'd been secured to the dock, they quickly made friends with their new neighbor in the boat tied up next to them. The kind man named Richard offered to drive the couple to a nearby restaurant where his wife joined them for dinner and drinks. Richard and his wife's impression of Lana and Chuck were that they seemed very happy together. After a fun evening laughing over cocktails, the couples retired to their boats. Richard said the next morning Chuck and Lana were up by 7 a.m., wanting to get an early start and cover as many miles as possible to beat the weather. They headed back out onto Lake Huron. At 12.30 that afternoon, the couple stopped in Presque Isle, where an attendant filled their gas tanks and listened to the couple joke about who should pay the bill before leaving. Lana was going to use her credit card to pay, but Chuck insisted. Lana laughed, telling the attendant, okay, then let him pay. Lana then asked the man if there was any trouble spots or shallow waters along their planned course. When the attendant studied her plans, he noted that Lana, always prepared and safety conscious, had already marked the two dangerous shallow areas that he had planned to warn her about. She had entered them into her GPS. The attendant never imagined that he would be one of the last people to see Captain Lana alive. The next morning, Friday, August 12th, the waters in northern Lake Huron were nasty. The waves were four to five feet tall and choppy, with winds gusting at 30 miles an hour. Late that morning, Mary Jo Behan was piloting her yacht through the rough seas and rainy, windy weather. Her husband Tom said they saw a boat on their radar from several miles away. 
As they drew closer, the couple noticed details which seemed unusual given the rough conditions. The boat appeared to be drifting. Its engines were in idle, with no signs of passengers aboard. The vessel was named Sea's Life. The boat's waterproof top was down, and the companionway door which led into the cabin was open. There was a rope extending from the back of the boat, with blue marine fenders attached to it. They realized quickly that this boat shouldn't be out on the water, so they contacted the nearest Coast Guard station in St. Mary's to report what they had found. From the Coast Guard, they learned that the boat had been reported missing. Just one hour earlier, Lana's father had called the Coast Guard to report the boat being overdue. Lana's family hadn't heard from her or Chuck since 1.45 the day before, when Lana had called her godmother in Florida. On that phone call, Lana seemed happy and in good spirits. Lana told her aunt that she was about two hours from Mackinac Island, that they'd be there soon, but the couple never made it. When the Coast Guard arrived on the scene shortly after the Behans spotted Sea's life, they knew something had gone terribly wrong. They tried to call the boat. They used a large speaker to get the attention of anyone on board, but there was no response. The boat was empty. Not only was it empty, but it was 11 miles northeast of Mackinac Island. It was way off course. The engine idling and the stereo still playing while the boat drifted, tossing to and fro out in the middle of the lake. The Coast Guard immediately launched a massive search and rescue effort. They had boats and planes canvassing 1,600 square miles. But after 24 hours of searching, there were no signs of the missing couple. The Bayhans, who reported the bobbing boat, speculated that it was possible the boat might have broken loose from a mooring, or that someone might have accidentally been separated from the vessel and couldn't climb back aboard. When Lana's family found out that Sea's life was found empty, they jumped into action. They couldn't believe that Lana, the daughter of a former Coast Guard officer, could go missing on the water. Not their daughter, the woman who always followed the strict rules of boating she'd learned from her dad. Within hours, Lana's large family came from all over the state. They studied maps, they rented airplanes, helicopters, and even jet skis. They even took Sea's life out once it was cleared. They pulled together about 20 people, including family and friends of Lana's father, to search the lake. They believed that Lana and Chuck were probably out on the lake holding on to some kind of life jacket or a life ring. Another group of cousins plastered the northern Michigan shoreline with flyers asking for help in finding Lana and Chuck. They tried to cover every bar, every marina, every party store, anywhere they could think of, hoping to find them. Before long, the Michigan State Police had a missing persons case on their hands. After examining the boat, there were very few clues about why the young couple had vanished. There was nothing unusual about the condition of the boat. In fact, things were laid out neatly. There were some clothes and shoes that looked like they were laid out intentionally and neatly. There were no signs of a struggle, no signs of blood or damage to the boat. Things that would have been taken in a robbery were still there. A wallet lay in the boat with money still inside it. The clothes were in neat piles. The natural assumption was that the couple somehow drowned. Maybe they decided to jump in and somehow got separated from the boat. The thing is, the water was cold on Lake Huron. The weather wasn't very calm. Calm enough to drive in, but not to swim. And why would they both jump off the boat? It just doesn't make sense. According to Dateline's report on this case, 
the water in Lake Huron had only been 65 degrees on the Thursday before the boat was found. When the gas attendant at the marina they had filled up in, around 12.30, waved goodbye to Lana and Chuck, they had been bundled up in sweatshirts. When Lana had talked to her Aunt Pat, she hadn't sounded like she was getting ready to dive in for a swim. Lana had told her godmother that they'd left early that morning to avoid rough weather, but it didn't work out that way. So her godmother believed the water conditions had been rough. Another point of interest was that the boat's swim ladder was up, not in the down position one would expect it to be in if someone had planned to go for a swim. Lana's family didn't believe that whatever happened on this boat started with a casual swim in Lake Huron. 65 degrees is cold. Between 60 and 70 degrees, for most people, it's uncomfortably cold. Your breathing would be harder to maintain, and you wouldn't be able to hold your breath as long as you would otherwise. The estimates for survival in temperatures between 60 and 70 degrees estimate exhaustion or unconsciousness in two to seven hours, but if you had something to hold on to, expectancy for survival time could reach as long as 40 hours. To Lana's family, even an accidental drowning seemed very unlikely. She was just too experienced. They felt that, even if she had gone into the water, they were both excellent swimmers. Both Chuck and Lana had been seen treading water in Bermuda for as long as 30 minutes. This was a thread of hope that kept Lana's family positive. But on Tuesday, August 16th, five days after they had last been heard from, that hope began to fade. Lana's father had been scheduled for heart surgery on that day, and she'd promised to be home from Mackinac to be by her father's side after the surgery. If there was any way that she could possibly reach out to her family, they knew she would have. But that phone call never came. August 24th, 14 days after the couple left for their trip, a strange shape on a rocky shoal along Lake Huron caught Beverly Wheaton's eye. Using her telescope, she spotted the body of a blonde woman in her 30s, about 50 to 100 yards offshore. Just one day earlier, Beverly had seen the state police officers combing the waters near her home. She knew what they'd been looking for, but it was still shocking to her when she realized what her own eyes were seeing. That day, Lana's family's hopes were crushed. No one could stop crying, and plans for a funeral began. They hoped that Lana's body would answer some questions they had in their minds, but answers wouldn't come. Her body only brought more questions. She'd been found naked, wearing only a necklace, a ring, and a treasured Omega watch. This watch wasn't waterproof, but it was one she'd worn often while boating. She had a habit of taking off her rings, slipping them onto the band of the watch, and attaching the watch to the steering wheel of the boat whenever she went swimming. Her watch had been a treasured gift from an old boyfriend, and she'd recently spent $300 to have it cleaned and resealed. Her family knew there was no way she would have jumped in the water wearing her jewelry just to go for a swim. Police were still of the opinion that she'd gone skinny dipping, but it's a theory her family refused to accept. Okay, so maybe you're asking, what if there was alcohol involved? Well, there was an empty fifth of vodka on the boat in the trash can, but a close friend of the couple who'd been out on the boat with them said there was no way Lana was drinking. She never drank when she was operating the boat. She always waited until she was safely docked. 
Months later, a toxicology report would reveal that Lana's cause of death was drowning. In addition, there were elevated levels of carbon monoxide in her body. 13% is what my resource said. Heavy smokers often have carbon monoxide levels of 6 to 8%. It's possible that she may have had mild carbon monoxide poisoning or intoxication from the carbon monoxide, not from alcohol. There was just a negligible amount of alcohol in her body. Otherwise, her body had no signs of trauma. It gave the appearance of being a boating accident, and there was no definitive evidence that there was foul play involved at this point. But foul play couldn't be ruled out either. Could she have been pushed overboard and left to drown? Well, that was a small possibility. But why would Chuck do that, and where was he? Or did someone kill them both? Lana's family couldn't rest. They believed something bad had happened to her. Shortly after the incident, a man named Jack Coat volunteered his expertise for both Lana and Chuck's families. He was a lawyer with 25 years of experience. His expertise was reconstructing the events surrounding the disappearance of boaters. He agreed with Lana's family about her not intentionally wearing her watch into the water, and he believed that one of the most intriguing clues that pointed toward foul play was that one of Lana's size eight and a half New Balance running shoes was found lying in the boat with a knob from the boat's GPS bracket strangely wedged into the sole. It was at an odd angle and placement, one that couldn't be achieved without a lot of force. This indicated to some that there was a struggle on board the boat. There was also a large tear in the back of the same shoe. Let's not forget about those fenders that were hanging off the back of the boat. The couple who spotted Lana's boat had worried about a possible man-overboard situation when they noted the pair of blue fenders tied together and dragging from a line behind the boat. The Bayhans estimated the line to be 30 to 50 feet long. Any safe boater wouldn't allow that to happen. They wouldn't leave ropes in the water to drag behind the boat. The lines could easily tangle in the boat's propeller or become a hazard for other boats passing by. Lana's family were confused about the boats and fenders. As far as they could recall, the fenders on Sea's life were white. The family said Lana didn't own any blue ones and hadn't purchased any. They had receipts and printouts of Lana's purchases. They'd called several marine stores and never found proof of purchase of any blue fenders. Could it be, then, that another boat tied up to Sea's life? And if so, could they have hurt Lana and Chuck? Police downplayed this possibility, because by the time the Coast Guard had arrived to secure Lana's boat, the blue fenders had disappeared. The Coast Guard never saw them. They questioned the Bayhans' recollection, but the Bayhans stood fast. The fenders were there, no question about it. They were 100% sure. So now the question is, where did they go? Even more disturbing was that the GPS tracking system on the boat had seemingly been turned on at 1.30 in the morning. This was more than 12 hours after Lana's last phone calls. It would have been dark then. Was someone on board the boat messing with the device? Maybe to find out where they were currently located? According to Dateline, the GPS had some missing data, too. The company that made the unit said that that type of blank in the records could only happen if someone intentionally deleted the information maybe to hide where the boat had truly been that afternoon? If there was foul play, who did it and why? 
Well, we all know the first person the police normally would look at would be the boyfriend or husband, but in this case, he was missing. If he didn't show up, dead or alive soon, then who else would want to harm two successful young attorneys? Pirating wasn't a problem on Lake Huron. So did the couple have enemies? Well, Chuck had been a criminal prosecutor. Maybe someone he prosecuted had a vendetta against him. But no one came to mind. Even if someone had, how likely would it be that they'd kill Lana too, and out in the middle of a lake? There were easier ways to get at them on land. It seemed pretty far-fetched. So what then? Did they run into someone on the water who meant them harm? Maybe they tried to help someone who ended up hurting them? Where was Chuck? Well, his body has never been found. Police hoped that if he had drowned near where Lana did, his body would have washed up somewhere near Lana's, but it never did. Police didn't find this strange, because many bodies that end up in the water are never recovered. Perhaps they get snagged on something, or the water's too cold for bacteria to grow and for them to float to the surface. Or maybe his did, and then sank once more, never to be found. The fact that Chuck's body wasn't found made Lana's family uneasy. What if Chuck was involved in Lana's death? What if he ran away? What if he's hiding somewhere? Chuck's family's angered by suggestions like this. There's no way he would have been involved in Lana's death. He wasn't violent. He wasn't hot-tempered. He wouldn't have hurt her. Or would he? The relationship between Lana and Chuck's families became increasingly strained as members of her family wondered if Chuck could be alive and responsible for her death. Lana's family had reasons for worry. According to a bartender friend of Lana's, she reportedly said that if anything ever happens to me, look at my boyfriend. The statement was made after Lana had watched a TV show about the murder of Lacey Peterson. If you're not familiar with Lacey Peterson's case, her body and the body of her unborn baby was found in the San Francisco Bay. She and her baby had been murdered and thrown into the bay by her husband, Drew Peterson. She floated to the surface three and a half months after she was killed on Christmas Eve of 2002. Lana's statement was made a few months before she disappeared, and several witnesses signed sworn statements confirming the incident. They didn't believe she was joking, and she seemed really nervous after having made the statement. There were also sworn statements from people who described a troubling incident at another bar in downtown Detroit. One night, Lana and Chuck were hanging out with another couple. Chuck had too much to drink and became belligerent. When Lana told him to straighten up because he was embarrassing everyone, he started swearing loudly and calling her names. The couple said Chuck's verbal abuse was so out of hand that at one point they had to stand between the couple to stop them from fighting. Two Detroit police officers who were at the bar having dinner forcibly escorted Chuck outside. According to Lana's friends, that was the kind of behavior that had caused Lana to rethink her relationship with Chuck. One more possibly important tidbit of information is that Lana made one additional phone call after she spoke to her godmother. She didn't actually speak to anyone, but she left a message with a man. This man was someone that she and Chuck had fought about before, a person who Chuck felt jealous of. Had he been agitated when Lana had spoken to this individual? She left her friend a one-minute message. In it, she said she was making plans to meet up with him when she'd be on the East Coast for her cousin's upcoming wedding. According to some, 
She wasn't planning to take Chuck to that wedding, but at the time he didn't know that. Could it be then that Chuck overheard the message as it was being left, and this led to Lana's murder? But we have to remember, there's no evidence she was killed at all, so this is purely speculation. It's also a stretch to believe that Chuck is now hiding out somewhere. Why would he leave a growing practice, a good job, and a good life to go on the run for the rest of his life? He'd never be able to speak to his family or friends again. That seems unrealistic, except that just this month, a former missing man named Robert Hoagland did just that. He didn't kill anyone. He just left his family, left everything behind, and never spoke to them again. When he went missing, he was featured on the national news. His missing persons case has been covered on many true crime podcasts. It wasn't until he became extremely sick and died before identification with his real name was found in his possession. Can you imagine what his wife and kids feel right now? Angry and hurt is just the tip of the iceberg of emotions that they're going through. After Dateline released their story of Chuck and Lana's disappearance, more reports of trouble between Lana and Chuck surfaced. Someone came forward saying he witnessed a physical altercation between the couple outside of a Detroit bar. Reggie Grimmer claimed he had seen a man beating on a woman and stepped in. In his statement, he claimed that Lana had identified herself, saying she worked for the city of Detroit. He was able to identify Chuck in a photo. Chuck's family felt this was a mistake. It had to be someone else. Chuck would never hurt anyone. To add even more uncertainty to the story, Two more witnesses came forward saying they saw a boat drifting unusually close to rocks along the shoreline. This was 12 hours before the GPS unit was allegedly turned on. It would have been between 1.30 and 3 p.m. on August 11th, the day the couple went missing. The boat was so close to shore, someone could easily have gotten off it. They also saw another boat that seemed to be speeding away. The witnesses who spotted the boat initially reported their sighting to the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, or the DNR. This happened shortly after Lana and Chuck had disappeared, but that information was not passed on to state police. The women came forward again after seeing the nationally televised reports on the missing couple. This lack of communication between the DNR and state police was one more irritation for Lana's family, who were growing frustrated with the investigation. So it seems we have three theories to choose from. One, Chuck and Lana came across another boat, and either one or both of them were killed. Two, Chuck killed Lana and went on the run, never to be seen or heard from again. Or three, the couple went swimming. Somehow they were separated from their boat and they both drowned. If I had to choose, and this is purely speculation, I'd go with the couple being separated from the boat. Maybe they weren't casually swimming, though. Could it be that Chuck stood on the back of the boat to pee, slipped, and hit his head when he fell, falling unconscious? Lana would have thrown the boat into neutral. In her haste to save Chuck, she tied the closest rope she could find to the boat, jumped in with it, and swam to Chuck. This would explain her jewelry still being on. Maybe she reached him, or maybe she didn't. But either way, the waves and the sea state were too rough, and she couldn't hang on to that rope. Maybe it jerked out of her hands, and the boat drifted away too quickly for her to catch up. Maybe she was able to tread water for a long time. 
but eventually, when hypothermia kicked into high gear, Lana began paradoxically undressing. Sometimes, when people start to develop hypothermia, even though they're freezing cold, they feel hot and they take their clothes off. Or, maybe she'd been using her clothes as flotation until she succumbed to the cold. This would still leave us with the confounding information on the GPS unit. Some sources say that when a GPS memory is full, it restarts, and some of the original data is erased to make room for new data. This information was in several of my sources, and if true, it would lend itself to the theory being more realistic. Since Chuck's body has never been found, it's likely no one will ever know how he died. That is, of course, if he's dead. If anyone listening knows anything about this case or Chuck's whereabouts, please contact the Michigan State Police. The lake is keeping its secrets. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and come join me at Twisted Travel and True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, or even TikTok. There you'll find photos relating to the case. Feel free to send me your case suggestions. You can reach me at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com. I have had a couple of very good ones that have come in recently, and I appreciate those of you who have taken the time to send me your ideas. If you'd like to financially support the podcast, I would be very grateful. Recently, I've had two wonderful supporters, one who wants to remain anonymous, and the other, Tracy C., has been a longtime supporter. They both supported the podcast through Venmo. You'll find a link in my show notes, as well as a link to a monthly subscription if you'd like to go that way as well. I'd like to take a minute to thank a few people who took the time to write a review. I'd like to start with Crystal, who says, yay, this is a new find for me. She goes on to say, you have the gift of storytelling, excited to find you, and have already alerted my traveling friends to your podcast. I love boat noises and music, so whichever way you go, I'm happy. (laughs) Thank you, Crystal. I'd also like to thank Joward40, who says, I love your podcast. You have a beautiful, soothing voice and wish you much success. Thank you. And lastly, Wise Sally, who says, Bingeworthy, can't love Sandy enough. Well told, diverse stories with one of the best podcast voices. She includes some wicked, wicked asides when appropriate. Thank you so much, Wise Sally. She went on to write some more, but I don't want to read it all because my head's just getting too big. <laughs> just joking. Keep sending those in. I love to read them. Thank you all for listening. And as always, I'd like to wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Take care.